Well, good morning. morning. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. You know, it's very polite to say good morning. I I really believe that. Um, I man, after after Will preached during the welcome about the corn, and then that worship time, I just feel like we're done. I just feel like we've had church. We've we uh, there's so much already. Uh, hearing the gospel, singing the gospel, sitting in reverence, just thinking about the Lord, beholding Jesus. Uh, it just doesn't get better than this. And um, we're. If you're new with us, this is what we do every Sunday. We gather together uh, to worship God together, to hear the scriptures being read, and uh, to hear the preaching of the word. Um, And this was God's design from the beginning. This is what God wanted for you, uh, to be a part of his church family, not just a part of the Big C Church, which is great, like the global, there's Christians all over the world, but to be a part of a local gathering of believers that that love one another, bear one another's burdens. Um, There's a design to it. And uh, we've been studying about that in the letter of Titus. Um, We've been walking through some of the passages, and I I wanted to give, I wanted to start with an outline of the letter of Titus just to give you a map of where we've we've been, uh, just an outline. So we've we've titled it, you know, Titus is is God's blueprint for a healthy and fruitful church. And this is because Paul wrote this to Titus. Paul, the apostle, wrote it to Titus, a young pastor, as he's pastoring on this island uh, called Crete. It's the largest of the Greek islands there in the Mediterranean. And he's preaching there, and this is a wild place. If you read chapter 1, these guys are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a a Gentile-type island, but there's a lot of Jews there that came after Pentecost, believed in Jesus, They go to the island of Crete, they're going back, they're converted Jews, but everything is out of sorts. They don't know how to do church. They have the gospel, but they don't know how to do church. And we read from the beginning of the letter of Titus that it starts with committed believers. That's important. That's like the intro. Don't skip that. Verses 1 through 4, where Paul is instructing Titus in the way that God has designed that. And then he moves straight into, now this is why I left you in Crete, so that you would Put in order what remains. You'd set in order what remains. And he talks about uh, the church being led by qualified men. Talking about elders, pastors, bishops. Those are all the same office, the same, the, the, the same authority role. And, uh, and you, you learn about that office even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we're not going to. But he talks about this. There's this role that God has in the church. Uh, it, it begins with the leadership. And so we saw that in chapter 1. A a healthy and fruitful church is led by biblically qualified men, men that are called by God uh, to help lead the church. And then in chapter 2, even though there wasn't chapters back then when he first wrote this, like Paul didn't write chapter 2, he didn't do that, but as we look so we can know all the lines, as we get to chapter 2, he pivots and talks about relational discipleship. He tells the church, if you're going to be faithful and fruitful, you definitely need to be led by qualified men, by men that are qualified by God, but you need healthy relational discipleship. It's got to be more than this Sunday morning gathering. We meet once a week. We meet as they used to meet, you could say. We meet to, to worship together, but this is what we would call the huddle. This isn't the game. This isn't where it all happens. This is just our way of gathering, worshiping together, being encouraged, and then going out. The rest of the week is what the church was meant to do. This is what the church was meant to be, not just the Sunday morning gathering. There's so much more 
and there's also so much more time, you know, one hour versus a whole week, God designed it to where we would go out and we'd be the church outside of these four walls, outside of this one gathering. There's so much more to it. And so he, Paul tells Titus, you need to make sure that your people are discipling one another. If you're new to church, you don't know what discipling means. It means like where you are teaching someone what to do and how to do it. You're not just telling them, but you're showing them. You're training the next generation, or you're training someone that's not the next generation. You're just showing this is how you walk with God. This is how you follow Him. So he starts that in chapter 2. He says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to, and he goes on, but you see how he's starting it. Titus, you have to make sure that you're proclaiming, speaking, Things are consistent with sound teaching. Sound, by the way, just to remind you, sound is where we get the word hygienic. It means clean, healthy. This needs to be healthy, good doctrine. It needs to be, it needs to be spotless. It can't have error in it. You have to uh, proclaim these things consistent with sound teaching. And then he tells them, this is what you teach them. And as you read the rest of chapter 2, you realize he's talking about a discipleship pathway. And so... Older men are to be, and then he says, self-controlled. Uh, let me get to my notes because I'm just preaching without notes now. Why am I doing that? All right, sound teaching. So, verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. Now, before we continue on, this is not just a sermon for men, right? Because it would not everybody in here is a man, obviously. Uh, I thought about this because when I was going to preach Titus chapter 2, what I really wanted to do was preach Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And then I realized, I'm never going to do that. I preach too long. There's too many words here. There's too many things here. But if I just preach on men, what are the rest of the women in this room going to do? Like, does Titus chapter 2, verse 2, have anything to say to young women, girls, older women? What is God's inspired word meant to say to those that it's not particularly addressing? Well, it is addressing the whole church. And the way I want you to think about this, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if you have your outline on the bulletin, I'm going to give you a number of sayings. There are a number of sayings that we're going to use to outline uh, this passage. But I want you to know, if you've ever asked the question, what kind of man are young women supposed to look for? If they're, if they're wanting to be married, what do you look for in a man? Or if you're not a young woman, if you're a, a not young woman, you know, yeah, we, we, don't have, we don't have adjectives or words, pronouns for that. I don't know what to call it. Yeah, the world doesn't either, by the way. Secularism hasn't even come up with a good one. Uh, if you're a not young woman, let's say you're a mom and, and you have a husband or you have children, what are you praying for your husband? What do you, what, are you trying to raise boys? What kind of boys are you trying to raise? Maybe you're not a mom, you're not a wife, uh, maybe you're not interested in getting married right now, but you're a female in the church. God has designed you, equipped you, using you for ministry. What kind of manliness are you going to promote in the church, with your friends, in your family? Like, what are you thinking, this is what God says men should aspire to? All men should aspire to this. This is important for moms and wives and young women and not young women. This is important for all of them. So, 
So as you think of these, a lot of these apply to women too, so keep that in mind. So Paul begins, older men are to be self-controlled. Discipleship begins with men. It doesn't end at men. Men are better than women. But God created Adam and Eve, and He intentionally, on purpose, made Adam first. It wasn't random. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't forced due to process. Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Genesis explains this. Paul writes about this again in the book of Romans. Men are in no way better than women, but God created men first to be examples, to be leaders, to care for the earth and the family and one another. It's a responsibility. It's an important responsibility And women disciple, and women are not less equal in any way than men. But Paul begins with older men because God began with men. It just is what it is, but it's important because it reflects his design and his heart for the church and the family. Older men, the responsibility hits you first. When you think back to Adam and Eve, You might think, well, Eve was tempted, she was deceived, she ate from the fruit first. However, what does it say in the Scripture? When God showed up, did He say, Eve, where are you? No. He spoke to Adam. Where are you, leaders, is the question. And so Paul begins with older men on purpose. They're not better. It's not that women don't disciple. It's not that there's this hierarchy of only men disciple. It's not that idea, but men are responsible first. Now, women are responsible, but men are responsible first. That's the idea. So, discipleship begins with men, and he says self-controlled. What does self-controlled mean? Well, most of you would know. In English, it's not hard. This word is used to mean like temperate or sober, or I like the word level-headed. That's another way to uh, phrase this. Instead of just telling you men should be self-controlled, I tried to think of uh, common phrases, sayings, or made-up sayings by me that actually connect to the words. I'm going to use the phrase, keep your hat on. Keep your hat on. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? I've heard it. Keep your hat on. It's an old English informal phrase to keep your hat on. Here's the idea. Have you ever seen a guy, a man, get upset. Maybe it's out in the field. Maybe it's, you know, out there with the animals or farm equipment or wherever. A a man gets upset and he takes his hat off and he throws it on the ground. Maybe he's really upset. He stomps on it. Have you ever seen that picture? Okay, there's a phrase, keep your hat on. It's a real informal phrase. I didn't make this one up. And it even kind of connects with men getting in fights uh, like if you like keep your hat on, a man would take his hat off to, to, to get in a fight. It's kind of like the equivalent of like women, keep your earrings on. Have you ever seen women about to get in a fight and they're like, uh-uh, this is going down. They start taking off their earrings. It's like, why do they do that? I guess, I guess they love their earrings. I don't know. But uh, since this isn't about women, it's about men, uh, men keep your hat on. The reason why I use this phrase isn't just because it connects with having self-control, Staying level-headed when you're facing frustration. That's what that means. That's what that phrase means. But HAT is a really great acronym. It's a wonderful acronym. H-A-T. When you look at the Bible and you look about how God has called men to be self-controlled. Men, I want you to be self-controlled. There are three areas, three ways in which men have to have self-control that are at the top of the list. And you can remember them by HAT. H-A-T. Hormones appetite, and temper. 
hormones, appetite, and temper. Throughout the Scripture, when do men lose control and make a mess? It's when they don't control their hormones. Older men, and this happens for older men, self-control. Have control over your hormones. Don't go there. Don't look at that. Don't give yourself to that. Don't be with a woman that's not your wife. Don't even be with your fiancé. Wait till marriage. Control your hormones. If men were to control their hormones, how different would our world look? Self-control. That's God's design. You want to know how men are supposed to, what men are supposed to aspire to, what discipleship looks like in the church? Men, you are the leaders, older men. Now he gets to younger men in verse 6. But older men, you have to set the example, self-control hormones or appetite. Now, this is not just talking about food. The idea of appetite relates to your desires. You know, when you talk about your belly, like your, your stomach is your God, it doesn't just mean food, although for someone like me, it definitely includes food, right? Gluttony is a sin. I'm definitely tempted to eat instead of go to the Lord. That's why fasting is such a wonderful habit and pra- practice, a holy practice. Appetite means like your desires, addictions, wild desires. Have you ever heard of like a young man who just spends his money loosely, buying things he shouldn't? He's not paying his school loans back. He still lives with his mom because he can't afford an apartment. And the whole reason why is he doesn't have self-control of his finances. His appetite, he's giving into his appetite instead of giving into the Lord. If you're going to be a godly man, if you're going to aspire to godliness, or if you're going to disciple younger men, one of the ways in which we need to be discipled is men have self-control over your appetite. Don't give in to every whim. Don't give in to every hunger. You have to learn to have self-control, to, to, to say no to things, and it's not just food. And then temper. Uh, you guys know the scriptures. I had to memorize these when I was younger. I had a bad temper because I hated people I shouldn't hate, and I was angry, and I was angry at myself. I remember when I first became a Christian at 16, I think by the time I was 18, I memorized James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Psalm chapter 4, Psalm 4, verse 4. Uh, Do not be angry, but while you're on your bed, search your heart and be silent. Psalm 4, 4, I'll never forget it. James chapter 1, 19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger does not allow us to do what God is designed to do. We have to have self-control. Now, anger itself is not a sin, but there could be unrighteous anger, and there could be responses to anger that are obviously sinful and destructive. So we have to have self-control of our temper. You can't let go of your temper. So self-control, hormones, appetite, temper. Then he says, older men are to be worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. Now, he doesn't say respectful on purpose. Worthy of respect means that you live in such a way that people respect you. Um, When you see the phrase worthy of respect, I don't know, different English translations do have it just slightly different. Most of them are worthy of respect. The idea is um, your social behavior, how you treat people matters to God. So men... We should treat people with respect. We should treat them how we want to be treated. The old adage is, to gain respect, you have to give respect. So when Paul says worthy of respect, to get to be worthy of respect, you have to give respect. A man that does not show respect to the people around him, 
is not worthy of respect. So you have to give it to, uh, to get it. So worthy of respect. Uh, the next thing, sensible. Me- older men are to be sensible. The word sensible uh, means prudent, thoughtful. Uh, the old adage is, think before you speak or act. It's both. Both are like so important. Speak before you act. Speak before you, or sorry, not speak. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, the second service is, is recorded. I'm online saying that. Okay. <laughs> think before, so see, I already gave you a living illustration. Think before you do. Think before you act. Think before you speak. Think first. You know, many, many cultures and societies have similar proverbs. They say it like this. Have you ever heard the phrase, look before you leap, leap right? Uh, or there's, there's a new one I've never heard. Act in haste, repent at leisure. Makes sense. If you just act, you're going to regret it later, even when you're at rest. So you don't want to have regrets. Think before you act. And pausing to think is a skill that is developed. It's not inherited and it's not natural. No kid is born thinking, hold on. Before I do something, before I go there, touch that, throw this, hit my sibling, before I do this, I'm just going to stop and think. No one does this naturally. This is a skill that's developed. It's like exercising, which means men are supposed to be exercising throughout their lives, stopping and thinking. Uh, I like to think of, uh, of stop, drop, and roll. Uh, you know stop, drop, and roll. Like if your jacket's on fire, you stop, drop, and roll. Now, if my jacket was on fire, I'd just try to take my jacket off. But the rule is you stop, drop, and roll. You can apply this to, in this Christian meaning of being sensible. Stop to think, drop to pray, roll with whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Just roll with the Holy Spirit. Stop to think, drop to pray, roll with the Holy Spirit. And it's important to know sensible does not mean fearful. You know what it's like when there's a guy that's just hesitant about everything. Oh, should we do this? No, don't do that. Oh, I don't know. And they're afraid. Uh, they're, they're almost unable to act. They don't know how to make a decision. That is not what sensible means. Because acting out of fear does not involve thinking. Did you know that? When you respond out of fear, there's a part of your brain that responds out of fear before you even know what's going on. That's why if like, that's why if like some of you ladies, if, if I decided to get one of my uh, rubber snakes, put Vaseline on it and throw it in the girl's bathroom out here and you walk in the bathroom and I wouldn't tell you it's me, so don't think it's me if it ever happens. <laughs> Let's say you walk in there and you see a snake and before you even know, I think this is a snake. Snakes are dangerous and I don't care for them. Before you even think that, you are going to jump and hit your face on the wall because your body is going to respond out of fear before you even know what's going on. It's so quick. It's like, it's, it's immediate. If you act out of fear, the idea is you do not think. So sensible does not mean fearful or hesitant. Sensible just means you stop and think. You can still make good decisions. You can still make quick decisions, but you have to stop and think. So men are to be sensible. Next, men are to be sound in faith. Now, he uses the word sound again, you know, healthy. They're supposed to have a healthy trust in God. If you're, you know, in church, we talk a lot about the word faith. We use the, faith all, the word faith all the time. When you think of faith, 
sometimes it's good to replace it with the word trust. Just think of the word trust. Are you trusting in God? Are you faithing in God? Are you, you know, trust? Men are to have a healthy trust in God. Faith is very powerful. And uh, the only way that I can relate this to men to remember this is this phrase. I know it's going to sound a little cheesy. Faith is stronger than muscles. Faith is stronger than muscles. You know, boys grow up thinking a lot of muscles, don't they? If you've ever had teenagers, right? If you're a parent and you have teenagers in the house, you know, they're just boys running around, they're playful. All of a sudden they turn teenagers and they're like, hey, you want to look at my muscles? You want to look at my muscles? And you're like, no, I, I mean, yeah, I saw them. I'm done. No, you want to touch them? You want to feel them? Absolutely not. I do not want to touch your muscles. Or like, uh, you know, teenagers, boys in particular, they have this desire, I want to grow up big and strong because strength equals power. I want to be powerful. That's how God designed us. We want to be powerful because we want to be able to do what's right. We want to be able to be strong to defeat the enemy. In the Bible, it's very clear, your muscles, one, are not going to last. They're just not going to last. Old age will get you or death will get you. Your, your mus- no mu- nobody's muscles are going to last. But faith can move mountains. Muscles can't move mountains. Faith can open doors that no man can open. Muscles can't do that. So sound in faith is a, a man believing Not my skill set, not my muscles, not my physical ability, but my faith is is the strongest part about me. That's what true strength looks like. Not height, not skill, not muscle, faith. So faith is stronger than muscles, and, uh, and faith can open doors, move mountains. Faith is what God wants us to grow in. And even though these overlap in application... I want you to think about what we have faith in because faith is not isolated in the Bibles. So when he says sound in faith, what does Paul mean by sound in faith? What should we have faith in? Well, I want to give you three things that cover the whole gambit, I think, of what God wants us to have faith in. Faith in God's word, faith in God's will, and faith in God's way. God wants your faith, all of us, but in particular, we're talking about men for a moment. Men, older men, must be sound in faith you must trust God's word. You must trust God's will. What he wants to be done, trust it. And you've got to trust his way. Sometimes God is going to do things that you don't understand and you have to trust him. So how is your faith? Right now in this room, if this were a good walk away moment, this was the end of the sermon. It's not. There's still an hour left. But let's say this was the walk away. How is your faith? What are some questions you can ask? Here are some questions. I'll just attach them to the three. Do I want to know? When it comes to, do you have faith in God's word? Here's one way that you can answer. Do I trust God's word? Let me ask you, are you committed to reading God's word? Deep down inside, do you want to know? Do you want to know what he said in the Bible? Do you you spend time reading this not because you're checking off a box, not to be self-righteous, not for legalistic reasons, but do you think God is my Father? He has spoken. This is a sure foundation. This is what I stand on. Do you spend time in God's Word because you want to know His Word? If you want to know if you really have faith in God's Word, the answer is not how you feel. 
The answer is what you do. Do you read it? Do you spend time with it? And this isn't a guilt trip. We all know what it's like to feel like I, I, I'm not reading enough right now or I'm not praying enough and all that. We get that. But that's where this discipleship comes from. That's why we need something other than a Sunday morning service. You need to have brothers and sisters around you encouraging you. Trust God's Word. Get into God's Word. That's what you're really... If you really want to know the secrets to life, it's not on the internet, it's not on Instagram, it's not on TikTok. You need to go to God's Word. This is what really tells you the, the truth, the real truth. Do you trust God's Word? The next one is, do you trust God's will? And here's a good question. Do I have to agree? Whenever I'm talking with people behind closed doors and we get to that moment where they're like, I, uh, I want to leave my spouse. I want to leave my spouse. And I say, you know, you know, God's designed it. You know, God's desire is not for you to leave your spouse. God, God wants you to love your spouse till death do you part. This is like a lifetime commitment. Well, I just, I'm unhappy. It's like, listen, you join 8 billion people. There's so many billions of people unhappy. I understand. I don't want you to be unhappy. Now, this is, this is excluding uh, abuse and, and harm and stuff like that, that people should not stay together for those reasons. You need to be separated from that person. You don't need to put yourself in danger like that. But just for the everyday, normal, marital issues, I don't want to do what God has said in His Word. His will is for us to love one another. Is His will is for us to serve one another. Here's the question. Do you have to agree? Do you have to agree with God to trust Him? Do you have to be like, hey, I feel the same way God does, therefore, you don't trust God, you trust you. If that's how you think, you trust you. How about the example, um, when I do premarital counseling, I tell a couple, now listen, God has designed relationship between a man and a woman, no sex before marriage, period. There's no sex. And, and God's design, His desire, His will is that is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the best thing for you and your marriage. God wants that. And I've had people say, well, I've read, you know, that, you know, if, if you live together, it could be a little better. You could kind of know if you really want to stay together. They give all these reasons that are outside of God's will. And I try to tell them, listen, I understand. I know what it feels like to not agree with God. I know what that feels like. I grew up in a non-Christian home. I grew up in, with non-Christian principles. I've had a fight against these things. There are some things that I know God has said that I would not have said them unless I read it here in black and white. I would never have come to that conclusion. I don't necessarily quote internally agree with him like I feel and think the same way he does, but I don't have to. Faith means you say, if this is God's will, let it be done, no matter what. It doesn't matter how I feel, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what the people around me think. Do I have to agree with God? If the answer is yes, then you, your faith, your trust is not very sound because really your trust is based on your feelings. And I'm telling you, your feelings are more shaky than quicksand. It is not going to hold up when things happen. Or do you trust His way? Do you have to understand? Let's say God uh, makes it to where you never get married. You can't have babies. Uh, your child dies. Horrible things, miserable things, hard, like just a life of pain and suffering. Do you trust God? You know what? This is, the, this is under His sovereign control, His way. I don't have to understand. I don't have to understand to trust God. Sound in faith means you want to know, 
You don't have to agree. You don't have to understand, but you trust. That's what faith in the Bible looks like. Do, are you sound in faith? And I know these are hard things. I don't say this callously, and I don't say this in a, in a vacuum. I also live life with problems too. But our faith has to be on God alone. If it's on what the world tells us, how our feelings tell us, what someone else is doing, we're going to miss it. Our faith has to be in God alone. Next, we are, te- we are to teach men. We are to disciple men. We're supposed to encourage one another to be sound in love. Sound in love. That's the agape love. If you know the different words for love in the New Testament, you know how in Jesus' language, they had multiple words for love. And if you've ever heard this, you know the agape love is the big love. This is the God love. It, it's a sacrificial love. It's a servant kind of love where you put someone above yourself, you, you serve them, you sacrifice for them. Um, it's a God kind of love. And there are four areas of love that mark a man. So just like um, when we talked about keep your hat on, there's four areas in which a man is, or three areas in which a man is self-controlled. There are four areas in which a man is marked by the love of God. Here are the four. He loves God. He loves his family. He loves his church. He loves his neighbor. God, family, church, neighbor. These are the four ways, and that was God's amen. These are four ways. I'm just kidding. I'm not speaking for him in that way. Uh, There are four ways in in which we love with a God kind of love. We love God. We are to disciple men to love God. To love God with all your heart. That's the greatest commandment. To love your family, your parents, your mother and father, children. Love your mother and father. Obey them, honor them, listen to them, love them. They love you. They loved you first. Love them. Uh, If you're you're married, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, No one, you know, doesn't feed his own body or he cherishes it and nourishes, nourishes it. God designed us to love our family, to love our kids, love your children, Love them with the kind of love that God has given you. God has shown you love. Love your kids. Show your kids through your actions what God's love looks like. And then you love your church. I could take you to 1 John. I could take you to Galatians 6, 9 through 10, especially for the believers. In the New Testament, it's repeated over and over. Uh, Jesus talked about it in John 13. This is how they, the world, are going to know that you're my disciples. Your love for one another. The way you guys love one another is going to be the impact, the, the big blinking light to the world that you belong to Jesus. Love one another and then love your neighbor. When Jesus gave the great commandments, he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Some smart guy spoke up and said, well, who's my neighbor? And we get the story of the good Samaritan. The idea is everyone's your neighbor. Everyone you come across to is your neighbor. Love them. Love them and treat them like you want to be treated. And, uh, and the idea is love in four-wheel drive. I guess I forgot that part. Uh, I try to think of love, you know, love in these four ways, God, family, church, um, neighbor. And, uh, and I thought of a truck, a, four, a four-wheel, you know, a four-wheel drive truck. Um, trucks are great. You know, if you try to drive a truck on three wheels and it is meant to have four wheels, that you, you don't get very far. I mean, you... It's not good. And if you try to like do like go mudding with three wheels, you're in trouble. You need all four wheels. And if you have four wheel drive, which means all four wheels are cranking, you can get through just about anything. It's like a dream. You just go through the terrain like crazy. If you as a man are stuck, you're just stuck in the mud. 
It might be because you ain't using four-wheel drive. You're not loving the way that God has designed you and called you to love. So a cool way to connect it with men, I think, love in four-wheel drive. All four wheels, God, family, church, neighbor. Helps you uh, get out of the mud, actually. So, so sound in love. Lastly, sound in endurance. That word endurance is a popular one. It's popular in the New Testament. It's popular for people that think uh, this is a big part of addiction recovery ministry, too. We use this word. Actually, um, one of the addiction recovery ministries I was a part of, they had the word for endurance in Greek on shirts. So people would ask, what is hupomene? What, what, what does that word mean? And it's like, this means to persevere, to endure. To, it's the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. You will not give up. You will not quit. Men are to be sound in endurance. Life's going to be unbearable at times, but you can't give up. So here's the saying. Here's the quip. Don't quit, choose grit. Don't quit, choose grit. Men are to be sound in endurance, not quitters, but to endure. You know, every man can appreciate another man's strong worth ethic because that's how God made us. Of course, there's supposed to be a Sabbath, right? We're supposed to rest. God designed us to need rest. Actually, a third of our life is sleeping. God didn't do that on accident. God didn't have to make us to where we had to sleep. Do you know that God could have made us to where we were more productive and chose not to? God chose to give us sleep a third of our life. We're unconscious. God chose to give us a Sabbath rest on purpose. There was a real meaning behind a rest. There is supposed to be rest, but man, God created us to work too. You know, work was involved in humanity before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, he said, work, cultivate the land. God designed us to work hard. That word for endurance means more than work, but you know what it's like when a farmer just works so hard all week long. You know that season where you just got to get that stuff done. You're there morning, noon, and night. You, you or, or policemen or military or officer, you know, you, you have different people. They endure under hardships and difficult circumstances and they won't give up. We're, we're pressed but not crushed. The idea of endurance is God designed us not to quit. And, um, and th- a man that is sound in endurance isn't passive and he isn't lazy. So the opposite of endurance is passivity where you don't do what you should do, you don't act the way God wants you to act, you don't speak up when you should, you don't seek justice, you don't want to get messy, you don't want to get in trouble. That's passivity. Endurance means no passivity. You are willing to bear up under it. And it also means that you're not lazy. You know, laziness is a sin. God has designed us to not be lazy. So, uh, don't quit, choose grit. Then we skip down to verse 6. Verse 6. And we're skipping verses 3 and 5 because it has to do with women. No, I'm just kidding. We're skipping it because we're, we're talking about men, and, and I can only hit so much in one Sunday. So, we're talking about men. He continues on. I think it's also important to note, though, verses 3 through 5 that are about women are couched in between the men passage, so there's not this big separation between like, oh yeah, men and then women. The idea is women are meant to disciple as well, and there's a specific way in which God has designed it to work so good. The Titus 2 method, great. So, verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Notice in verse 2, he said older men, and in verse 6, he says, this isn't just older men, this is younger men. So older men need to be discipling younger men in this way. Younger men are to be self-controlled in 
everything. Everything. They need to have their hat on all in all ways, in every way, in everything. And then he says, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Notice how he connects your works and teaching. Works and teaching have to go together. Discipleship is caught, not just taught. Discipleship is caught. It's got to be lived out. We have to be examples. You can't just preach, men, I want you to do this, right? You can't have a, go- a dad that's like, hey, have self-control of your temper. And then when something goes wrong in the house, he's like throwing stuff against the wall and slamming doors. You're, don't be a hypocrite. Your message has to match your, your walk, your life. Discipleship is caught, not just taught. It's also taught, but it's, it's caught too. You have to be example. Why? Verse 8. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Now, I want you to notice something because he makes a particular point of this. You have the word message and then you have us. There's a reason why the, our message and our lives have to harmonize. This is an essential part of Christianity. We are not called to be hypocrites to say one thing and to do another. That's vanity, that's emptiness, and that's not going to create a healthy, fruitful church. We've got to live it. Uh, And the way that I like to say this is, your message will never outperform your life. Your message will never outperform your life. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach. Why? Because people aren't going to talk about our message. What are they going to talk about? They're going to talk about us. Listen, no one can find fault with the Bible teaching. They may not like it, they may not agree with it, but there's no fault to be found. But you know what there's a lot of fault to be found in? You know what they're going to blast on the radio and on the media and on TV? You know how they're going to get Christians to have a bad image? It's not by what we teach, it's by how we live. Do we even do what we say we should do? Do we even live like so? Our message and our lives have to harmonize. For the preaching and teaching to be healthy in our church, we've got to live it. That's what discipleship is. And I want to show you this in a grammatical way. This is so cool. I know this is a little teaching heavy, but in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, if you, I know it wasn't divided up in chapters, but this sentence, when he's talking about elders, he says, holding on to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage and with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. And then chapter 2, verse 8, your message, he uses the word message again, is to be sound above reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed. This is a mirroring verse on purpose. Paul wrote it this way, or he had his scribe write it this way. He said it this way on purpose to look parallel. Our message has to be according to what the Bible says it is because people are going to go against it. And our message as we disciple and tell one another has to match our lives because people are going to come against us. They're going to come against the Word and they're going to come against us. These mirror each other on purpose because God desires for our lives to be transformed, not just that we have good teaching. Good teaching is important. It's an essential. It's required, but our lives have to live it. Do you know there are churches out there that teach things that are not against the Bible but live in such a way that the church is dead? And you could read about them in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. 
God actually gives us a message to real churches. I'm going to kill your church. I'm going to let your church die. I'm going to remove my lampstand, the Spirit of God, from your church. You will die a miserable death. It doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account. You might dwindle on for about 100 years because you have $100,000 in the bank, but your church is going to die. Why? Because you are not faithful to me in loving me, not just with what you teach, but with how you live. You've forgotten your first love. You can think of Ephesus. There's many examples of that in Revelation. So God was very clear, if our lives do not match our message, we're going to die. We are not going to be healthy and we're not going to be fruitful. And that's what the whole letter of Titus is about. And it's not just what we can do. You know, the gospel begins with salvation. I want to end with this. If there are some of you in here that think, man, I think men ought to be this way. They ought to be self-controlled. They, they ought to be sensible. They ought to be sound in faith and love and endurance. They, they ought to do all these things and be all these things. If you agree with that, but if you're not a Christian, if you've not given your heart to God in repentance and faith, and I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts you to know if that's you, you cannot do this. If you try to do this, you're going to be depressed and discouraged because you're never going to be perfect or you're going to be proud, falsely thinking that you are this good. No man is this good. No man is a perfect image of Titus chapter 2 except for Jesus himself. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed these words. God, I'm so glad you have Jesus because I could never do this. I am never going to give you all that you deserve, only Jesus did, and I'm so glad you have Jesus because Jesus satisfied this relationship with God. Now when I come before God, as imperfect as I am, he's not wanting something else that he's lacking. He has everything he needs for his relationship with me to be whole. God loves me like I'm his son, and he sees me through the righteousness of Jesus. His blood is, is covering me in a way. My sins are no more. They're as far as the east is from the west. I'm righteous before God, not because I'm perfect, not because I don't make mistakes. It's because of what Jesus did, and he did that in my place. So now, when I look at Titus chapter 2, and I think, will I ever be this? The idea is, I'm already, I'm already loved by the Father, and I've been forgiven, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be a godly man. I can live, not perfectly, not all the time. I can pursue this because God already loves me and he's already saved me. But if you're not a Christian man in this room or online, if you're watching this, you have to get saved first or else you're going to be proud or depressed. You cannot live up to this. And the gospel is so simple. We have a God that created us and everything, the whole, the, the world of the universe, the heavens and the earth. We have a God who created us. He created us in his image. We do not reflect his image perfectly. We do not walk with him and obey him. It's called sin. We sin. We do the wrong things. We don't do the right things. That sin gives us death. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And that is what we earn through our sin. We, we, are, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2 says. But God had a plan from the beginning that God would send His Son, Jesus the Messiah, He sent His Son 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned, but He died a sinner's death. He died on a cross 
in our place, you could think metaphorically in a way, but literally also, He died in our place, the death we deserve to receive the wrath of God. He died, and on the third day, He rose from the dead, conquering death. The Bible says that death could not hold Him, that He defeated death, our enemy, what we earn from our sin, and that we could respond to Jesus. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago, God invites you right now today to respond to right this very moment. If you turn to him, the Bible says, in repentance and faith. Repentance means I, I, I don't want sin, I want God. I know my sin is wrong, God is the right one. I no longer want to sin. It doesn't mean you're better now, it doesn't mean you don't sin, it doesn't mean you've cleaned up your life. It, repentance is an inward thing to where your heart and mind are changed and what you really want is God. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is that word for trust. You're trusting that Jesus is the only one that could forgive you of your sins, that he came 2,000 years ago, he died on a cross, he was buried, and on the third day, God rose him from the dead, raised him from the dead. If you believe that in your heart and you turn to God and say, God, forgive me, forgive me of my sin, you're the only way to be made right with you. That's repentance and faith. God says you will be saved. And for the rest of the church, that message, that good news message is what God has handed to all of you to share with the world. When is the last time you shared the good news, the gospel with anybody? When's the last time you shared it with anybody? Loving them and just telling them, you know what, we do have a creator, we have a God. And, and he made us specifically to reflect his image. You know, the whole gospel, just tell them. Tell the gospel message. People are lost without the good news. And there's some people in this room that are lost and God loves you. And if you would turn to him in repentance and faith, you could be saved today. So let's pray. Let's pray for those that are listening and, um, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have called us to be godly men and women. Um, and, and I thank you for Titus 2 that just outlines so clearly what you have called men to be. And it's only through the power of your spirit that we could follow you. It's only by your grace. Uh, holiness without grace is just self-righteous um, blindness. And so we just pray, would you help us with grace and truth to live sanctified lives, to, be, to live holy, separated lives for you? I pray for the people in this room. Some people in this room were convicted about their own sin, about their own trust in you, about their own love toward you. I pray that you would, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would open their eyes to how they can follow you and to be made right with you. And um, we pray for our church. Help us to be a healthy and fruitful church. Help us to make disciples of men um, that look like Titus chapter two. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.